Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. And I'm Sarah Griffin. And this is Juvenalia, a podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a bit of pop culture that was important to them when they were young. Our guest today is the co-creator of Welcome to Night Vale and Within the Wires, among many other things. It's Jeffrey Craner. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be on the show. Very exciting to have you here. Um, you have a, a real curveball of a, a topic. I've yeah. been trying to like fit it because I'm a fan of your work. I've been trying to fit this into what I know of your work and I cannot do it. So I'm very excited to just hear you talk about why you've picked Clash of the Titans from 1981. I was obsessed with this movie growing up as a kid. I, I don't know why. It just anytime it was on television, I would watch it. I mean, I, I was born in 75. And so in the early 80s, this movie would have been on TV a ton. Uh, so we we had we had cable at our house, but it was also on regular television. They would just air it pre- pretty regularly. It's funny rewatching this movie this week because it's so old. I mean, it's from 1981, so mm. that makes it 40 years old almost. But it's also like even when I was watching this in like 1983, I thought it was 50 years old. Like it just has the look of a film that is uh, from the 1960s and. It, it came out the exact same year as Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is baffling to me that these mm. two same week. entirely yeah. same yeah. week, yeah. Uh, these entirely two different looks of films in terms of their special effects and what they were doing. You know, I, I think what always grabbed me about this movie was Ray Harryhausen's work was the the, the stop motion effects. Uh they're, they're so beautiful and they're so haunting. And I think for me, what I've always gravitated towards is things that, 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 that evoke something without actually looking real themselves. I like that in art. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I don't gravitate towards realistic art, although I'm super impressed with it. But something that really gets to the heart of what's terrifying and animation has always done that for me. And, and particularly Ray Harryhausen stuff, because he's not creating an entirely realistic look in the movement of his figures. Medusa is probably the this the Medusa scene in this film is probably the m- most indelible image I have in any film that I've ever watched. Those uh, long, like, stalking sequence through the redness of that temple, it's very, very unsettling. It's super unsettling. And even little details that aren't horrifying, there's the moment where Perseus throws his shield up onto a statue t- to have her see his face and distract her. But just the way the shield lands perfectly onto the statue... It's so silly. Like, it's so hard to think that they made this decision as creators, as artistic, as, as artistic directors to be like, yes, let's do it this way because it's, it's cheesy looking, but it, uh, that motion still, it still captures the, the almost surrealism of this scene. I don't know. Stuff like that has always stuck with me. I, I just think it's, I think it's really stunning. Like those lovely moments in the beginning where um, Perseus receives his, uh, like his helmet and the sword and the shield, and they just are there yep. in the courtyard, just posed, there, waiting for him, talking to and him as shields do. Gift from God, is it? Like yeah. delivered with total sincerity, and that um, it's not it, what's nice about it, and I think that that kind of setup of the way the plot unfolds, it's not meant to be realistic. No. You know, it's not here to show you a representation of reality. It's here to show you something else. And that's why the Harryhausen stuff contains like a, it's a really um, heavy feeling, you know, like it feels huge, even though so much of it is miniatures and projections and all of this wonderful um, old fashioned uh, cinema, cinema trickery. <laughs> it's, it's still very um, it's got a real sense of scale to, it. you know, it feels enormous. And uh, it doesn't want you to think it's real. It just wants you to think it's incredible. Yeah, I think stuff like this really shaped me as a th- creator in theater, really. Oh. The, the idea that it, it's really the simplest things that you can use to convey something on stage. And having done low-budget theater in downtown New York for so long, uh, the it's really wonderful to know that you can just bring a, a, a swath of, of blue fabric up on stage and just kind of have two people sort of wave it. And you're like, this is an ocean now. Now you know this is an ocean. And this movie does that, obviously, with 
some, uh, I would say, advanced special effects for 1960s, probably not for 1980s, but it, it does it in Ray Harryhausen's very specific way, and uh, I, th- I think that's always that that's always stuck with me. I think that was something I learned as a kid because I was hyper aware of how unrealistic this movie was when I was a kid. I knew that it wasn't very good in terms of its special effects. It's astonishing to think that it came out after Star Wars. Yeah. Ray Harryhausen, yeah. by the way, has said that he created Bubo, the the mechanical owl, before R2D2. Before R2D2. Yeah. He said no. he, had, he had been working on that before R2D2, but it just it Bubo in this movie, that owl very much feels like producers jumped in and said, R2D2 is hot as shit. <laughs> we need Where to. Yeah. Bubo is to- so totally dissonant in that film. There's a bit near the end where, like, Bubo like has a pratfall on a cliff, mm-hmm. and like yeah, basically little stars it. were in his head. And like five minutes beforehand, there's a naked, a fully naked woman getting out of a bath. It's like <laughs> yeah. two totally different audiences. But like that's what Bubo's presence. Like I was trying as I was watching it, I was kind of trying to glean who it was for, right? So especially if you've seen it as a child, I would be totally happy to show a kid this movie. You know, like it, it's not a family film, but it also it feels like very universal. Yeah. You know, like it's scary and it might I mean it's it's scary as an adult. It would definitely that Medusa business, the two headed dog. I think the two headed dog is a, has a cool name. I can't think of, of what it is. It's like the Os Colossus or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's it's it. The D. Yeah. yeah. Didn't enjoy the two headed dog at all. Uh, you know, there's lots of kind of unsettling instances in it and the thick blood and the scorpions like there's lots of very. um upsetting things but none of them feel like a violation all of them feel um like the kind of horror that you experience in in a kind of a fantastic way rather than the sort of thing that makes you like you know i saw the exorcist when i was nine like reconsider everything you know? <laughs> there's sort of a safety in how scary it is yeah you know? yeah and i think it's i think some of it is the animation and the fun that they're having with it uh, yeah. I did read that they had to they had to cut out some of the the final battle with Calabos uh, because it oh. was too violent and they wanted to get the rating down. I don't know my UK ratings. Uh, a versus U. Uh, I'm not sure you. what that. It would be you on this side of the world. I okay. Think. Mm. So they wanted to get a rating that allowed children in to see it. Basically, right. they wanted uh, they wanted to have some recommendation that kids could get to see it. So this sort yeah. of R two D two owl minus some of the more aggressive violence. Like, we never see him cut Calabos's hand off. We just see him show up with the hand. Stump. Yeah. Oh, my God. And that is quite jarring, where you're like, oh, he really absolutely did it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Calabos <laughs> is very frightening as well. Like, and there's obviously a lot to be kind of said retroactively about his depiction as, like, a, a the only person of color, really, in it. And is that blackface? If, you know, it there's it a is, because that guy who yeah. plays him is white. Yeah. Mm. That's a... Uh, unconsidered move i feel (laughs) (laughs) it absolutely is it's it's not uh it's not it's not positive in its in its accepting or understanding of race and stereotypes as well and like this sort of like yes you will be deformed and it's like oh all right man yeah okay Okay. all right Lawrence Livy. But uh, he's a very frightening but he's also a tragic villain as well like he's really he really didn't didn't want to be there you know like he his relationship with andromeda is really sad you know the thing he did I, kill all the flying horses besides pegasus ah, yeah, he's that against him yeah. grief, man. bad things happen yeah. <laughs> he, he's a little bit of like billionaire's son who goes on safaris and kills endangered animals like that's exactly who this anymore. person is <laughs> he uh yeah watching this as an adult i watched this a few years back uh for the first time in more than a decade and so the thing that's been sitting with me in the past several years since rewatching it has been has been the the relig- the religion of it the idea that the gods are so flippant and we learn that when we learn mythology we learn yeah. that the gods just do whatever but when you put it into these actual characters so uh Calibos is somewhat of a tragic figure even if he is a total d-bag in so many ways as a person we don't necessarily see all of that and even if he is it's not necessarily enough to say you deserve to do this like you are just a person who is succeeding in a system that benefits you 
But the gods are like, well, it has nothing to do with his goodness or badness. It has everything to do with this with this battle between uh, Thetis and Zeus, really. And there's no nuance. It's just whatever Zeus wants and feels. And poor um, Hera is just standing there by his side, kind of going, you know, like, close. What are you going to do? What are you I think do? the only actual joke in the, in the entire film there's like the little scene with just the goddesses. Yeah. Talking about him cheating and stuff. Yes. And it's like seriously the only actual like word like verbal joke in the entire film. It's the cuttlefish and shark. We both face besides that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really playful. The goddesses feel like I feel like there's a lot more room for them there. And I really mm. like their portrayal of Aphrodite, which could have been just very easily a kind of a, a young nymph as opposed to a very sophisticated, quite stern looking woman. Um there's lots of interesting choices there anyway. And uh Athena and her owl. Little owl. I love her owl. Really that that's the one. If in I, I never watched the remake of this, but oh. it, it's I do wish that she had sent the actual owl into it rather than an R two D two character, and yeah. we could have just had a claymation real owl boobo. Yeah. Like there's something, but there is something very tender about the way that she instructs, like, a, a, like before we get to the, I wouldn't even give him R2-D2, like the Jar Jar Binks of like, oh, there's our quirky character. <laughs> um, he's, there's this very tender moment of no, we'll make him one, you know, and yeah. Zeus can't tap his way on every call and Zeus standing there with his tiny statuettes of his people is brilliant, very frightening, like very primally scary as an image that he's just kind of placing all of these clay figurines of mortals into different coliseums. Um, I think that aesthetic strikes something really kind of deep, you know, it's, it's disquieting this visualization of the gods and us as just like clay figures, you know, it really, paintings, yeah. yeah, it really does. And it really does put the, the, the cliche of just being pawns into mm. visual effect. Uh, it, it's so beautiful. Uh, so, so creatively done. Uh, but also super un super unsettling to just to think like yeah mm -hmm. it's just at the whim of whatever they believe that they just destroy whole cities, uh yeah it's uh for yeah, ego essentially for yeah. ego yeah and the other gods have very little power against Zeus so you can see how that makes for brilliant drama like it makes for really great drama and all the different the various retellings we've had of the different Greek myths and I did notice in, the, in a lot of the design and the way that the costumes are put together given the pop costumes are largely just bed sheets um, <laughs> there is there are details that made it all the way through to Disney's Hercules as well which I thought was really nice like there are odd little shapes and and things that have made it all the way through um, I think that the that the nineties Disney Disney's Hercules it's almost in sort of a playful conversation with this film specifically. Oh, um, fascinating! I've never seen Hercules. That's yeah. oh, great fun. It's great fun, <laughs> but uh, far less violent than what we've just seen. Um, so, would you you wouldn't have seen this in the cinema, would you, Jeffrey? No, I, I did not see it in in the in the theater. I, I definitely only ever watched this on television. Right. It's the, um, and is it it has the feeling of something that might have I, I I feel like I saw this on television as well, but it feels like a, a snatched after hours type thing. It's not really well maybe it is two o'clock in the afternoon broadcasting. I don't know. It was a it was a very mid afternoon on a Saturday. This is the type of thing you would watch on the UHF channels here, and it was sort of at the same time that they would have these same networks, these same stations, like local networks would have just been getting uh old Godzilla Mothra type of features as well, like rubber monster battles and things, probably because of the the need to fill programming, the lack of mm. original programming. You know, we live in a time now where like everybody creates original programming, but the, I just growing up, all these stations just ran reruns of old black and white, you know, Dragnet and I Love Lucy and anything else they could get their hands on. And and so they also ran these types of movies. So these would have been on at any point in the day. And the only thing they would have cut out was the nudity. So yeah. they would have they would have just cut out the breastfeeding um, by Perseus's mother, and they would have uh, by Danai, and and then later the bathtub scene. Yeah, there's very little. There, there's very little of uh, like uh, like sexuality in it at all. It is full of very attractive people, for sure. It's a little but, male gazy, but it's not. Yeah. It's not sexual. Yeah, it's not that. It's kind of romantic, you know, in a way that feels kind of wholesome or something. Like Andromeda is lovely. Like God love her. She even gets left behind when they go up to see the fates. They don't really involve her very much, you know. But um, 
I loved the sequence when uh, Perseus first enters her city and there's this horrible frightening moment where he looks up at this pike in the middle of the town square where a previous suitor of hers is being burned alive and he's just like well i'm gonna get involved here obviously like you know and he meets his new best friend the exposition guard oh exposition guard exposition guard yeah Yeah. we determined you didn't do anything else or yeah we determined, uh, my wife Jillian and I rewatched this last night. She also grew up watching this movie a lot. The exposition guard, whose name I've already forgotten and I forget every time, but exposition guard uh, is so great because he just has that face of a guy who's very tough and stern, but also could be a good friend and he is a good friend. Mm. But when we, it's only, it's like half an hour later after we meet him that he has his helmet off. And we both pronounced him as having the most unexpected hair. Like he wins that Oscar because he's got this like really tight, puffy man perm. And it's Mm. so, it's so funny to me that it just doesn't match this man's face. There's something about it that just doesn't ever look quite right. It's a hairstyle you see a lot on like 80s British TV shows. Okay. In like, in like working class stuff. Uh It's a very Uh like... Coronation Street. Yeah, Coronation Street. The Bill, LFB, the same pet, that kind of thing. Okay. It's a very, yeah, builder who needs to do something with his curly hair, hairstyle. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? But there, there are many a bad wig. There are many a bad wigs in this, but they don't feel, I think, again, because we're, I have, I have a very, um, very intense wig sensor. And, That's two episodes um, in a row we talked about your wig. I guess I'm just obsessed with them. Like they'll just ruin the movie for me. I'm just like, here's, guess what? It's like this wig for 90 minutes. Um, but uh, I think again because of the heightened panto energy of it, because of the, um, it's just not even meant to be a little bit realistic. And I would be personally annoyed if they were trying to tell a story like this in a realistic capacity. You know, and we talk a lot about um, like loathing CGI here and what that what it does and the sort of emptiness that it lends to cinema like you don't feel like you can t- well of course you can't touch any of it it's just pixels yeah and uh i love how touchable all of this feels you know like how that especially that the exposition guard scene where you see the the backdrop of the city in the background which is of course just paintings and miniatures and things placed together by harryhausen in a really evocative way it doesn't look real but it feels huge it I, feels like the mm. thing you picture inside your head i always feel like that's what evocative means to me that that it evokes a, a truth that it evokes a feeling in a way that it's not trying to make a simulacrum of truth or a simulacrum of an object and that's the thing is is that while none of the claymation i know it's not claymation but none of the stop motion uh, figures in this movie are actually present so these actors are doing some, you know, early 80s equivalent of green screen acting. Uh, that's just, I mean, that's what they are doing. They're doing green screen acting and they are acting against things that aren't there. They're, they're given a point to look at in the sky and uh, that's, that's the Kraken and yeah. that's how it works. But they, there's still something about these figures have weight that actual physical weight that somehow CGI does not and even if they do feel their movement is staggered in that lovely stop motion way, I will always have a weird place in my heart for those missing seconds. Yeah. You know, those odd little beats that make the movement slightly jagged. What I like about the even knowing that they're shot in different places, they were still shot. And for all we know, like those first those early scenes, for example, where we see the first city being um destroyed by the flood and the big statue coming down and people being like hosed off their feet, you know, and this wreckage of a city. Um, that There's a kind of an ugly clumsiness to it all coming apart that feels to me more realistic than a CG rendering of a burning city. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Like, you have to go in like close on everybody because you can't do, bit, like, you can't like do like a big day after tomorrow flood city so you need to have very small moments with individual people getting knocked off their feet and like individual streets and it just brings you much more into it in like a almost like a group this it's not guerrilla filmmaking it's, it's absolutely not guerrilla filmmaking but it feels like you're down there at street level 
watching this thing happen rather than just because they can afford to show you the whole city in like a, a modern film. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's a lot of moments where like the especially when Argos is getting destroyed at the beginning and we see the flood the, the flood water coming in. There's so many people like running down steps and they you you see them go go ah and then they fall over and it's very clearly like the water has been superimposed onto the scene. But it yeah, it conveys that that meaning entirely. Uh, you mentioned uh, right before we started you y'all had talked about Twin Peaks. Yeah. And this was another thing that like later in life I found in my like later teenage years was Twin Peaks. And I think there's some real similarities, not in sc- screenwriting, not in style or anything, maybe a little bit in like the clarity with which people present their lines uh, is a very David Lynch staple. This mm. very Brecht- Bertolt yeah. Brechtian style of like, I'm just demonstrating what my character would be doing if this were real. And I think that this movie does a little bit of that. And and then you add to it the 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 stop motion, the Harry House and stop motion stuff in this creates such an odd movement. There's some elements of horror in there. There's some mm-hmm. elements of 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 uh, not disassociation, uh, a, a, a disconnect that happens from the reality. That the CGI sort of smooths all of that over, and it 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 forces and it forces you in CGI to make a creature that looks scary. That. Uh, that has to be scary because of what it does, as opposed to just it being there, just the Kraken being there, or just the way Calibos moves. Um, those are the it's things brilliant. that yeah, upset you and, and yeah. make you not quite feel right. And Twin Peaks always did that. It's disorienting. That's the dis word I was looking for. Is dis- it is disorienting. Is disorienting. Yeah. And uh, I've always tried to recapture that in the way characters behave or the way things look. Uh, I think that that's... I think that that's a really important component to to drama and especially horror. It is, and it's very difficult to achieve, you know. Like, or it, it takes. I think it requires a really particular kind of courage, right? Because there is a viewer of there are probably many viewers contemporary contemporarily of Clash of the Titans who just think it's camp, though it isn't at all, you know. Like, and I'm always on camp watch, you know. Yeah. But it's not. It's a little it's bit accidental like, camp at times. Um, but not, but not that often. Not that often, no. Know? There's there's the scene, you mentioned wigs. Uh, there's the scene at the very beginning when we set up Perseus that he's living on an island with his mother. So before he gets put onto his adventures by Thetis, he is, they show him on the beach running alongside his horse and doing tricks and jumping on and off the horse and things. And it's so very Going clearly over. stuntman wearing a just a hokey, chili bowl haircut wig that yeah it's so funny <laughs> it's really funny mm. what i mean more is that, that there's somebody who would watch this and go graphics are shit next right you know oh this looks lame that's obviously like a toy uh, there's somebody who wouldn't be able to re- there are plenty of people i'd say who are so visually who are more visually engaged with cgi and are more interested in that kind of work so as to not be able to consume this in a particular way. Do you know? I think this is very of a time and films generally don't look like this anymore. And in order to kind of create that horror feeling, because it is, I know what you're talking about, that disorientation and that weird gap, you know, that if a kraken were to rise from the sea, I don't know what it would look like. Maybe it would look like that. I, uh, Maybe it would move in weird, staggered ways, you know? I like, there's a question of- mark yeah, and mostly if I see Kraken depicted anywhere, it's almost always outside of this movie. It's almost always some kind of octopusy looking thing. Right. Yeah, and so it's very funny that my my impression of the Kraken has always been this like four armed, uh, swamp thing type yeah. of monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Big lad. You know? Same with Medusa. Actually, it's it's a very very a different version of Medusa to what you see most places, which is which mine's mostly what I would have had in my mind was like a cartoony, probably from like Animaniacs, probably a Medusa, yeah. who like wears a dress and is just misunderstood. <laughs> Whereas this, yeah. this is a really other Medusa, you know, so, it's it's not in any way relatable or human, really. It just has a face, but it's not anything to do with humanity, really. No, well, like that's the interesting thing about me. Like, so I was watching this, and when I was like, I was sweating during those red sequences, right? Of mm. getting a- it's so well lit that Medusa is so, so well integrated in. It's yeah, amazing. It's um, and I was like, hold on, because I've I know so many different versions of the Medusa story because it's mm. been 
retold and it's definitely become a contemporary feminist feminist myth of like here is what we were told medusa was here is actually kind of what was more likely to have happened there's all these different uh, readings and retellings of the medusa story but in one of the very earliest ones sort of before ovid was um that she is one of three heads of a gorgon so she actually was not like so there's one version of it which is that sidon um has a romantic relationship, a mm-hmm. completely consensual romantic relationship with a woman, and his <laughs> wife is like absolutely not, and then turns her hair into snakes as a as revenge, right? And like curses her, and then forgives her later. Um, but there's an earlier version of this story where she is one of the three heads of the gorgon, and so she was never human at all. She was um, a beast beginning to end, and I think that's the one that we see here because she has like a tail. She's almost like a serpent mm-hmm. with this feminine face, and then the snakes. So um, there's loads of different, loads of different retellings of the Medusa story and none of them end particularly well for her. But it's just a matter of when, when, if ever, was she a human? And here she's not. Here no. she's a organ, 100%. She's part rattlesnake. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got rattlesnake tail and yeah. Yeah. And body. Uh, and then the yeah. uh, the Medusa, the Medusa top. I didn't realize, uh, I, just thinking back on it, I, I, I just forget the fact that she's this really she's an archer as well. Uh, yeah. yeah, I f- sort of forget that component of it. Um, she's got like whole whole strands of stories behind her. You know, there's a. I was walking in New York uh, the last time I was there um, in a different world in winter. <laughs> we we're walking through what we kept calling the lamp district. The whole place in New York was at the lamp stores. Yeah, there's a um, there's a whole lighting district down there on the below Houston. Yeah. yeah. That's where we were. And there was an art gallery that we walked by. And I was like, oh, this looks like a nice art gallery. And then at the very end of a long corridor, there was a giant Medusa statue um, of her holding uh, Perseus's head. Whoa. And she's naked and beautiful and quite serious and has her whole snakes going and she's holding his head. And uh, I have the original, I think there's been lots of conversations about that statue since because it's been recast in bronze. Uh, for public display but uh took me completely by surprise i was just like holy shit that makes a lot of sense for her i've never seen that statue that sounds amazing yeah i think it's still i don't know if it's still in that original gallery but i think that they hit on something pretty serious with it as a piece of work it was really staggering it was huge as well enormous is it a direct swap of the the like the one in florence of perseus holding medusa's head like he actually he does pull that exact pose in the film as well yeah, where he's yeah. like going down by his hip. Yeah. Yeah. You actually see Harry Hamlin like making sure he gets his arm right as he does it. <laughs> Adjusting it. Oh, and yeah. there's a horrible moment where the head's in the bag and um uh the stabbing of the bag, it's really gross. Like I'm mm. very, very, very grateful that the bag was just full of thick red poster paint instead of anything that moderately resembled real blood. <laughs> yeah, Romesco sauce. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, it was full yeah. sauce. It was so gross. But yeah, that that really iconic stance. So I was particularly uh curious to see how they were gonna handle the Medusa story, but it was kind of relieving to me that she was a serpent and a gorgon rather than a woman who had survived an encounter with a god because Perseus's mother is also Perseus is the offspring of an encounter with a god too. Yeah. So there's all this muddy stuff. You get you see how people get really into the shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really? gone down the rabbit hole of how accurate this is to older mythologies and I think there's a lot of different versions of these things yeah. but mm-hmm. I do know that it's like common. the character of Calibos is is sort of an amalgam of different stories like he's not a, a real character uh you sort of know that immediately if you go to the wikipedia page because all the character names are highlighted to link to the other page and calabos gets zero uh i one thing that stuck out to me in this movie i was just thinking about this which is i thought about it with the movie jaws too there's there's this is another movie with a famous line in it with, which has released the it Kraken. Mm. It delivers it so flatly. It's, it's so dry. It's more just like, all right, fine. Release the Kraken. Release like, the Kraken. Real chill. You it's win. Like... Okay, fine. It, it re- He does say it like, fine, we'll get Mexican tonight. I mean, I wanted Italian, but we'll get Mexican. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, that's so the fun. way he says it. And it's very funny because in our minds, we're like, release the Kraken. Like, that's I this think... big dramatic if moment. If you say... If you tell someone Lawrence Olivia says Reese the Kraken in this film, this overblown like swords and sandals epic, you're gonna imagine 
the biggest line in the history of the world, but it's lightning bolt. Yeah. 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 None of it. He just kind of walks back to his toys. He's like, fine, release the Kraken and walks away. Yeah. Like it's, Unbelievable. It's a brilliant delivery, to be honest. It's very understated, to be fair. It's like it's a very super understated. <laughs> yeah. The the you're gonna need a bigger we're gonna need a bigger boat line. I'm, I'm getting the wording wrong, but that it's just kind of just sort of happens in the movie. Like it's not this big comedic moment nor a big dramatic moment necessarily. That's so often the case with these lines, right? Where like where if you if you don't notice the big line, you would almost miss it and skip over it. Same when I watched Uncut Gems finally, and I'd seen uh, This Is How I Win in a meme 50 times a day for a month. <laughs> and when it happened, it's like, oh, that was that was it. How, like, you wonder how people even pick it out in the first place because it's such a tiny little moment. Yeah, It's yeah. odd how things end up, end up surviving their text, you know? Like, it's a, it's a real, and especially with Release the Kraken, it's like a thing you see on t-shirts, yeah. do you know? Like, it's, and reduced back to this lovely kind of really natural delivery. I kept thinking about uh, there. It was announced this year in the uh, National Hockey League that Seattle is adding a team, and they're just going to be called the Kraken, uh, which is really <laughs> funny to me. And I just think about how overproduced uh, arena sporting events are, and just the big screens, and how they play a bunch of clips from movies and loud sounds and music mm-hmm. and things that. I got to imagine they did that. And then they went back to this film being like, God, we could get, we could get Lawrence Olivier saying, release the Kraken uh, to really pump up our crowd. Release the Kraken. <laughs> like, no, no I, you're going to have to do something else. Go to the, the remake or something. And then like, well, at least we'll have footage of like the Kraken coming out. And it was like, just, no, it's just this weird blue screen of Poseidon going, ah, for like two minutes. Poseidon's sequences in the water. In film. Yeah. God, for and again in this in Greek mythology, Poseidon is like out here coming up onto land. Oh, he's terrifying. Yeah. He is just riding all around him. Mm-hmm. Don't stand on the beach. He's coming for you. You know, and all of the things that happen to his respective offspring are very sad. Nobody has a great time with Poseidon, but they've done this fantastic job where he's just sort of under like under and in a tank with his mouth half open kind of doing this yeah Sorry, a lot of visuals but moving his head from side to side with his mouth half open like it's fantastic it's brilliant it gives no scope of what what Poseidon actually is capable of it's brilliant <laughs> like, it's just everybody's dog's body in that film yeah 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 he's, yeah. he's just, taken a few uh a few hits like he's, mm. he's not having a good time i had a this was my first watch of this movie since owning a, a nintendo switch and playing breath of the wild and i couldn't oh. help during this watch feel like this is absolutely just a video game uh that it, it the whole opening sequence as we we introduce perseus and then we we place him uh in uh joppa like uh, that, that uh, Thetis moves his body to Joppa so that he has to do this whole adventure. And uh, he gets his weapons. And he gets his weapons. He finds his weapons. So he's definitely They're just there. Yep. He starts and an in old the man local gives town. Him some facts. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Gives him some facts. And a special yeah. horse. And oh, a special oh. horse. That's one of the first. Yeah, that's one of the first quests you have to do is is tame Pegasus. And that's mm. that's that's what he has to do. Uh, he has Frank to go meet scared. exposition guard <laughs> so that he and can learn so, all of so these. Mad yeah, that there's no DLC for Breath of the Wild where I can get a winged horse. Oh, like, still mad. Big horse, the big horse, fine. Like, cool. Big horse, okay. The, big horse. the motorcycle is fine. Zelda's horse, that's fine. Kerry called our, our our Zelda's horse Brittany. So we've got Brittany, the Zelda horse, and then Big Horse, whose name is Big Horse. Like, that's. Oh, I called mine Big Paul. Big Paul, that's yeah. Oh, Big Paul is you know? so good. But winged horse now, that's what mm. this is what's missing. Like. The scorpion fight did feel like. Um, like a mini boss where there's like three henchmen to spring up and there's always like you know like in Hades the end of Hades where there's mm-hmm. always just little minions coming in at the end or what it also reminded me was like I don't play D&D but it felt like the end when you're getting to the end of a night of a D&D campaign where the DM knows there's a big fight but he doesn't want to get to it just yet because otherwise you'll be here all night so it was like I'll put in this little fight to keep you going just and then we can finish and then we'll move on to the big thing the next time yeah yeah, yeah. This... it would make a fantastic video game like scene mm-hmm. for scene yeah, you know? this whole this whole movie has absolutely video game arc where you just have your main quest, uh, and and each thing is is pretty straightforward, and it's just each scene is just another thing he has to overcome. Can we talk briefly about the witches 
uh, or the three oh old yeah. the three old women. I love this scene so much. Yeah. Like I clapped when they when when he finally got in there because it so great. It's such a creepy scene. Actually, Perseus comes off like the asshole in this one. He's such an asshole. Mm-hmm. It's not fair. It's not their fault that they can see the future. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm alone. The fates as characters are so compelling. Like, I'm mad about them. Now, the reason I said earlier that I think that Disney's Hercules owes a great debt to this film is also to do with the fates. The fates are very, very even visually like the the Disney fates. And I think there might have been a little, like, deliberate nudge with the ball and things. Um, There's a lovely webcomic called Lore Olympus, which I have been very involved with <laughs> i'm really just reading it every sunday for a while it's recently been bought by the henson company for adaptation and it tells the story of persephone and hates um in this lovely contemporary olympus it's very mythologically focused it's it's brilliant it's just really really charismatic uh uh storytelling and the way they show the fates is as three girls who work in an infinite video store so you can show up and ask for a video of a particular time in your life or somebody else's life. And the three of them are connected by a headphone and they're like, "Mm, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. But um, the portrayal of these three infinitely knowledgeable witches as just kind of bumbling old ladies. Uh I was like, come on, man, give me me some respect. (laughs) Little respect. They, They have infinite knowledge of time, past, present and future. Give them a minute, you know? Yeah. That was the feeling I got from this. I, I remember the scene so well, just visually and sort of the, the interaction. But I think this yeah. this rewatch came away thinking like, wow, this is so disrespectful, not only for how the characters are depicted, but really the, the, the thing is Perseus gets the eye from them. So they have that little, the clear, the, the cue ball that they hold up to their forehead so they can see mm-hmm. because none of them have eyes. And he steals it from them using R2-D2 Al, and yeah. he then uh, he then kind of holds it hostage to get information. He says, you have to answer one question, and then they answer it. And he says, one more question, and then they answer it. And then he doesn't say thank you, he just throws the ball on the ground and walks out. Mm. Asshole. Like, it's, 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 it was, it was a jarring little moment there. I, I was hoping to enjoy that more yeah. because I was just like, oh, let's see what they look like. And they look exactly like the Disney iterations of themselves, which you see later. But um, yeah, he's not, he's a non-character. Yeah. You know, he's a brilliant uh, blank protagonist, almost silent blank protagonist. Mm. But he's a dick in that scene. He's a super dick. Yeah. He's yeah. a super That dick. is one flash of personality we see is him being a dick. Really. Yeah, it's quite yeah. an adult, small ladies. Like, mm. uh, there's such effort is exerted to go and see them. And then when he goes and sees them, he's such an asshole. Yeah, yeah, he has a few of these moments where I think think the script was written not to make him an asshole, but to... uh, Just to keep the the plot moving. But there's there's a few throwaway lines in this movie that I, I think just do something that maybe they weren't intending to do. After they fight the two-headed dog and uh he one of the he's got three kind of npc soldiers hanging out with him to protect him i think uh, one of whom is exposition guard right yeah he's killed by calabos yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that guy gets killed by calabos yeah but he's got uh, yeah so he's got these three guys with him and one of them gets killed by the two-headed dog and then perseus comes in gets his sword back from the least threatening snake ever and he it's not even poisonous it's a, yeah yeah two npc guards are like really having a very difficult time with this two-headed dog and perseus is just standing there looking at a garden snake going oh, <laughs> oh no it's a it's a western rat snake what am i gonna do and he he gets his he gets his sword back and then kills the dog and then he's walking off with the two surviving soldiers and he says don't forget there's only three of us now. And I'm like, oh, I think they know that their friend got killed. I think they're well aware. I don't think they're going to forget it. I think, check. Thanks, boss. I got it. They're probably still freaking. They're yeah. probably still absolutely freaking. And that is real video game logic as well. Like, that's how characters are treated. You yes. Know, where it's like, ah, uh, yes, we're down a hit point now, gentlemen. Life is so unreal. Um, I think my favorite sequence in the whole film was uh, Andromeda. Andromeda's like, 
ghost emerging from her sleeping body, yes. vibing softly across her beautiful bedchamber while Perseus w- uh, watches her invisibly and uh, enters a tiny cage held by um, a really upsetting vulture. Yeah. And like a really big, really big, 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 big boy. The long neck is pretty gross. And um, what I loved about it was the time that the scene spends looking at the vulture and looking at the set and looking at the slowly moving possessed spirit of Andromeda moving like she's kind of she's a placeholder she's effectively a trophy you know I'm I'm interested in in her interior life but the story isn't that's fine it's from a different time sure but uh, she really like takes her time walking across that room and I really enjoyed the slowness yeah yeah lovely like it was lovely to look at because you know what's going to happen, you know. I like it reveling in its art direction. I really do. I, I I like it when it takes those moments just to kind of show what it's made, and it lets us look right at it. Uh, I think I think that that's really I think that's that's something that 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 goes missing in a lot of movies, especially when we talk about CGI era. I was just mm-hmm. having this conversation with uh, our friend Janina recently about dance movies and we were talking about step up two as one of the most disappointing and worst dance films ever because it doesn't uh it doesn't just hold the camera still and let us watch the dance and it's Mm. this like early aughts era film where it's still coming out of the 90s still in this gen x mode of we're we got to keep cutting we got to keep moving everyone's got a short attention span we got to make this look mtv cool with you know camera movement whenever people like uh when people are crumping like the camera shakes with it and Mm. and you know what's cool is dancing (laughs) people who can dance are really cool so to see a to, to to your point sarah to see a scene that just holds the camera still and says look at this we did like double exposure to create this lady walking across this room this gorgeously appointed room with this beautifully painted backdrop and this really disturbing buzzard claymation buzzard in the background like squawking like crazy yeah he doesn't even call her she just goes to it's brilliant it's very disturbing um, and we're sort of spectators with Perseus, who is kind of just going up there for a look at his future wife while invisible. Um, but there's a slow, and there's lots of moments like that where it, the film just looks at the world that it's built. And I don't think we see that a lot now because nobody has built these worlds. It's they definitely part of what makes it feel older. Because if you like, if if it's got this contemporary like Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark and stuff. Yeah. They absolutely do not do that. They, you're following a character the whole time rather than just hanging back and looking at a scene. So it's like it's much like it is 60s, 70s kind of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's probably coming out of a time when we just didn't move the camera that much. We I don't know mm-hmm. when uh, when we started in, inventing more easily accessible technology to allow cameras to to move smoothly. Uh, to track, yeah. to create more tracking shots and things like that. Uh, obviously, we were doing tracking shots very early on in filmmaking, but I think it was a, a much more elaborate system. It wasn't just like a thing you could buy on Amazon or P&H Photo mm-hmm. or whatever and uh, go pick these things up uh, for your for your independent film shoot. Well, especially if they're layering in monsters and effects and statues. Like there's another sequence of a different town. I can't think of which one it was where it's very clear that some of the giant statues are layered in, um, like sphinxes almost. And they have to hold long shots because otherwise they wouldn't be able to put in the monsters. Yeah. You know? So it's sort of form and function in that way that it's it has a lovely effect and it, it wants you to look at it. It doesn't want to play a trick on you. That's the other thing about it being like, this isn't real. Right. Is that it's not trying to deceive you. It's like, look at look at this magic thing that we made. We're not gonna tell you how we did it. It's not real, but look at it. It's beautiful. There's also know? something to people having painted those sets. Uh, that you know that we would want to hold the shot longer on those things because the the people who are making this aren't just sending it off to a computer lab to that's a wholly different department probably in another city full of people that the 
uh, uh, the on-set crew would never actually meet. Whereas the on-set crew, they may not meet the person who actually painted the backdrop for uh, at this studio shoot, but they are meeting the people who are putting it up, and those are the people that probably also worked with the artist who painted it or created it. And there's a lot there that that I think you there's a little bit more respect to the people that you worked closely with to make this, and that everybody. Uh, tied in. I, I, I'm I'm supposing I've, I'm I don't work on film sets, but uh, but it's, it's that theater energy though, isn't it? Yeah. Where you're like you can see that many hands built this space. Yeah. Mm. And those hands are all in conversation with one another. The most important thing that we're looking at here is very rarely the actors. You know, they're pivotal and they're important, but they're not more important than the kraken or the two-headed dog or the big wave that rises up out of nowhere in the beginning. You know, there's all the different features of the worker in sort of balance or something. It's balanced. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's absolutely it. Another image in this movie that really, really stuck out to me that I was excited to rewatch and it still is really unnerving and beautifully done is Maggie Smith's face Thetis's face being projected onto the statue. Uh, so, oh. so when it, when it, Cassiopeia basically says that her daughter is more beautiful than Thetis, uh, Thetis's statue falls apart and her head crashes down to the floor, and and then and they've basically just taken this white statue, and then they've projected Maggie Smith's face on it. And Maggie Smith's acting is to just keep her face perfectly still, except her eyes and her mouth. And they're doing this kind of like intro to Photoshop level of clips. This is so really basic modern day digital editing. My phone can do it. Any app on my phone can do it. That's Mm. shocking how compressed that technology is in terms of the time that it would have taken to develop it. Yeah. Compared to the time it took to get it into the literal palm of my hand. Yeah. And for her to keep, for Maggie Smith to be able to keep the acting but to have such a tight physical restriction on what she can do as a performer there mm. is really, really great. It's like it's a very saying, haunting scene. It is haunting. And that's that strange dissonance that you talked about again with the Twin Peaks thing where it's not meant to be real. It's not meant to be altering our perception of reality, but it's altering something else instead or challenging something else instead. And it's risky because we watching it as modern viewers are like, uh, that's... My phone does that. Again, like I said earlier about the modern viewer who watches that and goes, I can fucking do that, but like put my face on my cat, grand, you know? Like, absolutely love to do it. It's great fun. But I kind of still have a fundamental respect for it because it does feel weird to look at it and kind of bad, yeah. you know? the It conjures up more the feeling of what it would be like to witness a face appearing in a statue. I saw this great photo because there's so much statue talk happening this week. I know that we're going to be a little bit behind in terms of where the listeners are, are meeting us, but there was a lot of talk this week about the statue being unveiled of Mary Wollstonecraft in England, which was just sort of a big silver situation with a naked woman on top. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of lots of bored feminists of a certain ilk got very angry about it, but uh, I just thought it was kind of bad art. Fine, lots of statues are bad art in response to a thread on Twitter where someone asked, well, what is a good statue actually? There was this fabulous statue in China, um, which was, no, there was, I think the biggest statue in the world is in China. And this was like the fifth biggest statue in the world, which is in Japan, where in this town, half of the landscape is taken up by this enormous, beautiful white statue. Like, and it's a human figure. And so as you move through the town, the background is just consumed by this enormous figure. And uh, the scale of the statues in this film gave me that feel, that really strange same feeling of that's too big. Yeah. And that's meant to evoke the bigness that worship and religion actually is in conversation with. Mm. A sense of impossibility, yeah. you know. And yeah. that's a hard thing to think about and a hard thing to feel. And it doesn't add up and it doesn't feel right. And it it ends in a series of question marks and I do genuinely think that that weird moment of Maggie Smith's face on the enormous statue of her of her god body 
kind of calls that in. I'll send you the picture of the, and I'll, I'll uh, ping it along for the Juvenile feed of that statue on the horizon of the town in Japan because it evo- it, it, some things are too big for this world, you know? Yeah. And there is definitely a sense of that with that statue moment. And also with the Kraken and with some of the other monsters. Like, they don't add up. No. Um, the uh, It's very... Uh, it always struck me as strange when I was a kid and even as an adult too that the Kraken body when the Kraken is turned to stone by Medusa's head that uh, the Kraken immediately like falls apart is very funny that nobody else seems to fall apart immediately upon turning to stone Uh, but uh, the Kraken certainly does I was hoping it would stay frozen I was hoping it would stay Mm. this enormous stone creature coming out of the ocean you know yeah no such luck no, I uh, the 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 turn to stone thing I, I was really paying attention to on this go around in in Medusa's lair. Mm. Uh, I, I kind of wanted a little bit more time with this, but as Perseus is making creeping his way through her many pillared lair, um, the uh, you know I feel like by basically by the way as a, si- a side note in modern construction we're much better at figuring out where to put load bearing walls and <laughs> in her layer she's got like 15 pillars holding that ceiling up and i think oh i i think you probably needed to hire an engineer when you had this build place built but that's just where we're at but although maybe when, if you're a snake woman you enjoy curving your way around pillars oh i bet that's it i yeah. bet that's it she's it's an aesthetic choice yeah. yeah she was battling against this kind of like aughts trend of the open floor plan really yeah, exactly but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't perceive me, right? <laughs> I won't be perceived today. Off you go. I will not be perceived today. The, I want my cooking and my dining areas to be separate. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the statues or the, as Perseus starts seeing the stone statues in there, there's kind of a, you get a brief look at how they turn from statues to the, the positioning of these statues are very odd. And you realize it's men in fright or trying to hide their eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really great because you know, that foreshadowing that's a video game as well in terms of the layout of the room, because yeah. of course the room would have pillars for you to hide behind link, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Or you would, or you would knock them all down and the ceiling would cave on her. Yeah. You know, like I can tell you 18 different ways to take Medusa out that doesn't involve you getting anywhere near her purely from the layout of that room because it's a video game concept, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's a, and it also sort of depicts a failure on the part of these men that they must have tried to get close to her by hiding behind these pillars and still died in abject terror. Yeah. I found the texture of the statues really interesting as well because they're not like perfect Greek statues. They're kind of grainy and weird. It's like not there's like still a bit of life in it, which is really horrifying. There's like yeah. a weird texture to it. You can like, it's, uh, yeah, I find it really How do you expect Pompeii statues to look? Did you, did you guys study Pompeii in school? Uh, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. We went there as well. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's not at all what you would imagine in the, in the history books, they, they show these lovely illustrations of perfect, like similarly frozen by Medusa, mm. people who were trapped and preserved forever in ash. And then when you get there, it's absolutely not it's also very sad but it's not that at all and there's a kind of a, a texture to it that feels again unsettling and wrong and yeah because like their limbs like do things before yeah. they get frozen and stuff so they're the, all the shapes are you can tell this you can see the pain in the shapes of it yeah, yeah. oh that's that's really unnerving yeah i i didn't yeah. i didn't know this at all worth going to see in terms of like places on the face of the earth that shouldn't exist but somehow still do mm. it's 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 a piece of work like it's a lot it's very beautiful it's like it, the fact that you can still see the volcano it's like oh, I climbed being it. able to see like the mushroom cloud you know somewhere it's oh it's really yeah. weird and unnerving yeah the volcano takes about three or four hours to get up to the top of okay and it is cool it is it is deeply deeply cool up there fascinating um, but yeah, those statues and that the the form of the the bodies that Harryhausen depicts in his clay work and the sort of post humanness of them is is what's really upsetting. You yeah. know, like the monsters are scary. The world, the world and the visual composition of the set is scary. But the way that he treats the human body, you know, that's what like that's what gets in on you. I was pretty amazed as another side note in this movie on this watch of how easy 
Pegasus is to tame and kind of what an idiot that horse is. Like the horse is not smart at all. Beautiful, but not smart. Beautiful, but not smart. I would love a flying horse, but I would have to be very aware of, uh, I mean, it's sort of like my cats. They're really beautiful, but they're not very smart. Um, I guess that's just how it goes with animals. This is a thing I should know. Yeah. It reminded me, he reminded me in the sequences of Perseus flying with Pegasus reminded me a lot of Return to Oz. Which I think there are lots of moments in this film that are kind of close in the the fear that people leave Return to Oz with. We did another episode about it with uh, author Louise O'Neill. Um, and there's a lot of uh, costume and a lot of prop and a lot of uh, very little computer interference with the storytelling at all. And there's a real uncanny sense when you look at the monsters from Oz, like the wheelies and the, um, or wheelers rather, and... The gnome king. Uh, the gnome it's king. Very otherworldly, yeah. And it's very Harryhausen. Like it's very. It calls on that same body wrong. Yeah. You know, which is uh, it's difficult to evoke in CGI. I, I really think it's 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 done. I don't think we'll see things like that really anymore, except in very rare instances. It's interesting what people find uh, scary from the adult point of view of like what we think is too scary for children, because my narrative on return to Oz was, it was one of the things I wasn't allowed to watch because there were so many news articles when stories coming out when that movie came out, that it was too disturbing for children and people had, were taking their kids out of the theaters crying and things. And the thing is Mm -hmm. like this uh, clash of the Titans for me was really upsetting. I kept rewatching it in the reason why, we like upsetting things in the way we like hot peppers. Like it upsets my body to eat spicy food, but I really have a great time doing it. Mm-hmm. And it. I, that's uh, the same sort of thing of like, I liked feeling disturbed by this movie. I think as an adult, if you've never seen this movie and you were to watch it, there's no way you're going to be that disturbed by it. I don't think, mm-hmm. but the imagery for a child is, is really upsetting. And so when I finally watched return to Oz, when I was like maybe 13 or 14 or something, I remember thinking about it the way I thought about The Dark Crystal, which was, uh, oh, once you're kind of past 10, this isn't that scary. But yeah. a little bit, you know, under 10, it, uh, Dark Crystal's horrifying. Like, it's super upsetting. You watch it as, a, mm-hmm. as an adult, you think, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. It's so silly. But when you're a child, the Skeksis crumbling into dust yeah. buries itself very firmly inside of your brain. So it can just show up whenever. Yeah. You it know? Can just, guess, like, yeah. once you have, like, enough life experience to have some degree of, like, empiricism about you, you can <laughs> tell what, what's possible and what isn't. Yeah. So uh, before you're, like, 10, this is all... It could be a kraken, you know, somewhere in at the beach. But Santa Claus, Skeksis, kraken, mm. all absolutely plausible. Yeah, you know? like hundred uh, percent. Missy or Match has gone. Extra guess. <laughs> what up? Uh, so there's a real um, and it's not that kind of surrender of innocence moment, right? Where you start being kind of a citizen of the world in your teenage years, and that real breaking of innocence in a you're still curious but you have attained enough knowledge to know what's real and what isn't you're also that's that's the heartbreak moment yeah because by by the time you're getting into your teenage years you're starting to really understand how adults work and how people work and and you're getting a little bit more sophisticated in your understanding of how people communicate you're obviously not there yet but you're you're getting there whereas as, as a child you are still, as a younger child, you're still learning not only how people act, but how they should look, how things should move, how gravity works, how your body... You have accrued experience. Yeah, even looks. And so when you see things that kind of violate that, it it, it, it pushes you out of, it pushes you out of your comfort zone in, in, in a way that as adults, we you know, you know, in a way that we can understand that this isn't real. That Yeah, as Alan said, like, there's an empiricism to being an adult that as a child you just can't have uh, because you're still, every every bit of information is still kind of new to you. And so you have to process it like it's fully possible. Yeah, God. Except when you kind of get to, like, I don't know, I saw, I watched Twin Beasts for the first time when I was 15, and that was the first time I'd felt challenged in terms of fear and being frightened since I was a kid, you know, and it reawakens a whole new set of terrors, which is a lovely feeling to be like, oh shit, there is so much 
<laughs> there is so much. And even now when I sit down to watch that work like that, I'm like, oh man, I am I am a tiny scorpion yep. <laughs> with a useless stinger. I am nothing. I'm a, a speck. This is terrible. Um, I was thinking a bit about Jason the Argonauts as well when I watched this and how that felt, you know, how Jason felt. And seeing those bodies and those skeletons and those those like monsters and i'm glad i had that experience yeah you know? again another ray ray harryhausen masterpiece yeah and uh jason the argonauts i almost you mentioned uh, going back to twin peaks i i i wouldn't when you reached out to me sarah i, I was thinking about Firewalk with me uh <gasps> that was something that i first saw when i was 16 years old i believe perfect and i'd never so seen neat. twin peaks the tv show i just saw the movie. I guess I was 17 when that came out, so I saw I saw Firewalk with me, and I uh, it was so up it it was so upsetting. It scared yeah. the bejeebers out of me because yeah. I also didn't have familiarity with Twin Peaks world at all. Like that was just some network TV show that I wasn't ever watching. And I went with friends to see Firewalk with me, and that was uh, it. Really blew my mind, and it and it. it it was the first time really maybe since like Clash of the Titans or uh, Dark Crystal, like a, a, a movie captured that sense of, of I can't make sense of the world anymore. I can't understand why this was like this. And I want to watch it again. <laughs> and, again. Yeah, and I want to go back there. Yeah. I want to go back to that like shattering moment. Like we got it. I think we should do a roundtable episode about, about Firewalk with me or further do it because uh, Simon, um, O'Connor, who talked about uh, uh, Twin Peaks in our last episode, he it, it, it's a huge subject. And I think it was a shattering point for so many people. It yeah. wasn't. I think there's a lot of people for whom that very particular kind of story was a redetermination of how you see the world. Yeah. And weirdly enough, I feel like I can I can see the connection i can see the weird through line or this school of of cinema or tv that includes clash of the titans it includes the dark crystal that hold this sort of reality altering power yeah mm-hmm. and i don't think and this does relate to clash of the titans but on firewalk with me it i think that film works so much better if you've never seen twin peaks the tv show because yeah. it 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 gets rid of the expectation that narrative will be fed to you. And I don't, I'm a person who, I I love narrative. I respect narrative. I think narrative is so important in communication and politics and in family and in friendships and things like that. But the, the, the story, the plot, the people who watched Lost demanding that we wrap it up and it all makes sense. The people who watched Firewalk with me needing to, a, a prequel to like, Laura Palmer's life before she was dead. I'm like, uh, okay, uh, that's great. I'm way more interested in the fact that this world is a world I just got dropped into and I have no idea what the logic of it is. And that's fun for me to figure out. It's very textural rather than linear. And in Clash of the Titans, while this is a super linear video game narrative where you're pretty locked into each step, Perseus has a very specific task that he has to overcome. As a child... It never made sense to me because it's all the logic of the gods. And so I loved this Alice in Wonderland type of feel that suddenly he just wakes up in some coliseum, uh, that he he wakes up and 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 this this next thing is just in front of him. And it you just even though it's perfectly linear and the task ahead of him is clear. Uh, it was all just a wonderland. It always just, the, yeah. whatever visually was about to happen, I didn't know what to expect. And I, I love that so much more than as an adult watching Clash of the Titans, I think Exposition Guard, which is, I'm <laughs> going to remember that for a long time, is so good. The exposition is the least interesting part of this movie, and there is a lot of it. But uh, the the scenes as he gets to them, I like it better when it doesn't make any sense and we just have cool action and adventure and visuals. God, that's amazing. I feel like we could talk about this for another two hours. Yep. I am conscious that we've just hit our hour mark. We've just hit our episode mark. So that's probably, though heartbreakingly, a good place to leave it. Yeah. Um, so, oh, man. Yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame. Yeah. So uh, many more things to talk about. So Jesus. much. 
Jeffrey, plug some things for us. Yeah, Jeffrey. People can find you and your, your works. You can find me uh, on Twitter at Happier Man, and I make uh, the podcasts Welcome to Night Vale and Within the Wires, which are both fun fi- uh, fiction podcasts that deal in horror and sci-fi and just you know, storytelling about relationships. And then also, uh, I just started a new podcast this year called Random Number Generator Horror Podcast Number 9 with my friend Cecil Baldwin, who loves horror. I'm a little horror averse. Uh, As you can tell, I'm sort of curious about it all the time, but uh, we're walking through at random uh, a movie a week that it comes from the horror world. So we jump all the way around from like Psycho to Children of the Corn 2. And so it's uh, it's a lot of it's been a lot of fun. So uh, check that out wherever you find your podcasts. Cool, Sarah. Where can we find you? Ah, uh, on Twitter at Grifsky and in your bookshop, generally under Spare and Found Parts or uh, other words for smoke. Alan, what about you? Uh, I'm Alan underscore McGuire everywhere. This is the only thing I do. Um, <laughs> Juvenalia is Juvenalia underscore Pod on Twitter. Juvenalia Pod on Instagram. We have a Patreon. There are bonus episodes. One of them coming soon will be about Hades if you want more Greek God talk. More Greek chat, yeah. yeah. Um, thank you, Dean McDonald, for our artwork. Thank you. Check out some other Tall Tales podcasts like Creep Dive and Mother of Pod. And we'll see you in two weeks. And thank you so much, Jeffrey Craner. Thank, thank you. Really Thanks, Bye, y'all. Everybody.